Dennis, last week it was all about reducing the cost of natural medicine mm. and looking at ways, simple ways of using herbs mm. as infusions or decoctions. Yes. And today you want to tell us about some of the uses of these herbal teas. Well, I certainly do, Jane. I uh, think it's one of the most uh, interesting topics to look at, the way in which simplifying the use of the herb can be just as effective as taking more sophisticated and costly herbal products. And it is Health Naturally with Dennis Stewart. We are going to talk about herbal infusions and decoctions and the differences, but we're also taking your calls. Kelly has rung in from Waratah. Kelly, your questions about um, your take, you're undergoing chemo for breast cancer and you're asking for some help with the, some of the side effects. Is that right? Yes, yes. Um, I'm happy to hear about anything. I'm going to lose my hair. Mm. I'll be ill. Mm-hmm. Um, so anything at all that you can, any information or advice you could give me at all, Dennis, yeah. I'll be and happy I'm, with. And I'm happy to do that, Kelly. I know something about um, what you're working through because our family has worked through a similar situation to what you're working through. Now, fortunately... Um, with aspects of, of uh, side effects of chemo, etc., one of which, of course, is going to be nausea and vomiting, there are some fairly useful uh, natural remedies that uh, would be most unlikely to interact with the chemo that you may be having, albeit, mm-hmm. albeit as I always say to people uh, in situations like this, run it past your oncologist or your general practitioner Uh, In in 99 cases out of 100, there are no problems because uh, most of the the people involved have a reasonable uh, attitude towards using simple things that can buffer some of the the, uh, side effects. Look, one of the most important herbs, and this might sound very simplistic, one of the most important herbs that you can use to overcome the nausea and even to, to function against any vomiting is is the herb peppermint. Now, peppermint, yeah, peppermint. Okay. And and if you are good on the net, you can uh, look at using the herb peppermint, and you will find that what I'm saying is very strongly supported. It is um, very very well documented in the writings of the great German medical practitioner and medical herbalist Dr. Rudolf Weiss, who puts it forward as an anti-nauseant. And the good thing about it is, the the best way to use it is, as I am intending to talk, if I get a chance today, uh, on, a, on a herbal tea basis. That is, purchase peppermint from a health food store or sometimes even uh, from, a, from a supermarket uh, as tea bags or the dried herb and just make up a, a cup of herbal uh-huh. tea of that peppermint and have it across the day. Uh, I would even suggest about three cups a day, even when you are feeling comfortable, uh, use the, the, the infusion. It is an infusion because you don't boil uh, peppermint. If you were to boil peppermint, you would destroy some of its chemistry. And this is what I'll be talking about hopefully today. What we're talking about now is a herbal tea that's made as an infusion. And that is where you pour the boiling water onto the dried herb, but not boil the herb in water. So you make a simple herbal tea, just like you're making a cup of coffee, let it stand as long as you possibly can. Of course, don't drink it in a scalding state, but take it across the day. That's 
one of the most effective, simple and accessible ways of getting an anti-nauseam. The one, however, that most professional herbalists would have um, been taught or they should have been taught um, is a well-known herb in Western herbalism known as black whorehound. Black whorehound. Now, there are two whorehounds. Uh, there is a, a, what's called white whorehound, which is the basic remedy used to address uh, chronic coughing. But black whorehound, again, if you search the literature, particularly in, in the writings of the great English herbalist Simon Mills, you'll find there's very, very confident uh, representation of that herb for very, very serious uh, nausea associated with, with multiple medical conditions. So there are two remedies. Uh, peppermint would probably be the easiest one to start with, uh, but if you're not satisfied with that, uh, seek out a medical herbalist who should have it in a liquid extract form, uh, where in a dose-related way, I've never known it to fail in the cases that I've treated for nausea. So that was a liquid... Okay, the liquid extract of black whorehound is, is the way in which most professional herbalists, such as myself, would use that herb. Uh, and that would be taken probably in one or two mils of the extract three times daily, prophylactically, or to treat an episode. However, what I'm saying is the, uh, the simple peppermint is easier to start with because you can procure it more readily and it should give a good result. Those two, however, should be worked around. They're very safe, well documented, and I'd be surprised if you didn't get some relief. If you are growing, like I have um, peppermint growing myself, yes, yes, good, so good. I just grow, I just dry that out. And, yes, look, um, this is my advice to anyone who is growing their own herbs. Uh, we often hear, oh, look, they're best taken in their fresh or green state. Be a little bit cautious about that. Some herbs or plants generally in their fresh or green state contain chemical constituents which are not always that safe. In the drying process, many of those constituents are attenuated as far as their toxicity and that's why in traditional herbalism the vast majority of herbs that are recommended are always recommended in their dried state. So I would be suggesting that if you have pepper, and I'm glad you have got it, it's wonderful, you get it, uh, dry it in whatever way you want, uh, and when it's dried, you just put the leaves, crush the leaves up, and, and a good, uh, say, a good uh, five grams of the dried leaves in a coffee cup, pour on the boiling water, and, uh, and away you go. Great. Okay. Thank you very much, Dennis. Well, it's Quite a little bit of help. It. It's a little bit of help. Yeah, let's hope. But um, I'm sure you'll come through it okay, Kelly. To NYFM's Health Naturally, and we are taking your calls. Wendy from Charlestown. Now, you're asking about dementia and iron infusions and, or supplements. Yeah, and iron supplements um, in, to help in the prevention of dementia. Okay. Look, my response to this, Kelly, would be that... Wendy. Uh, uh, Wendy, I think that's a little bit simplistic. I, iron deficiency uh, is always a factor in, in any condition, and that would be something that your general practitioner would pick up pretty easily by way of doing blood testing, etc. I would be I would be surprised if uh, deliberate um, taking of iron um, would be a way of offsetting dementia, what I would say is that deficient iron in the system may precipitate 
unusual symptoms due to the deficiency state. But I'm, I'm not, I haven't read anything that uh, supports um, the view that taking uh, deliberate, perhaps elevated levels of iron have an effect on dementia. Look, I'm not a specialist on this and I stand uh, contradiction. But having said that, uh, my view is that a lot can be done. And I know this is controversial, what I'm going to say, but a lot can be done with the use of natural medications to slow down some of the symptoms of perhaps dementia, particularly in its early stage or in its what's called controversial stage. Now, I have a bit of a view on dementia. I, I tend to think, and it's a tendency, and I'm not in any way at all contradicting my medical colleagues, but I tend to think uh, we too quickly jump to the conclusion that someone is evincing the symptoms of dementia. Now, uh, because I believe that some of those symptoms can be related to some of the immediate things that that person could be working through and that counselling and appropriate supplementation with nutrients and herbs can in fact help remarkably in overcoming. Now, to give you an example, I, I saw one of my patients in my rooms yesterday who a month ago presented in a very distressed state uh, where it had been suggested that she should seek investigation because the family was convinced that some of her actions and uh, some of her problems with memory indicated an early stage of dementia. We had a long discussion. Uh, both of us were about the same age, and I explained to her how at our stage in life, uh, family problems, stress, anxiety, can all precipitate um, deficiency symptoms, if you like. We've got a lot on our minds, so to speak. Anxiety can make our recall a little bit fragile. That's my viewpoint, controversial as it might be. How I treated this dear lady was to put her on a bracket of herbs uh, that, if you like, are herbs that address anxiety, uh, tension, and have what we call a trophic effect on the nervous system. I saw that lady yesterday after a month and I think she'd be the first to say, if she were here today, of the incredible alteration in her own uh, image of herself, the way in which her symptoms of recall and that had been uh, improved, and that she no longer she no longer was listening to the instructions of the family who were saying, you, you, you need to get investigation, you, you're slowing down, you've got dementia. I dissent from that viewpoint, and what I've proven is that counselling, talking to people uh, of your own age, um, I get worried when I uh, hear of elderly people in, in my age bracket uh, being counselled by 20-year-old people whose life experience really um, is not that great. So I believe that there's an overdiagnosis of it and that counselling and the use of natural supplements particularly herbs that have anti-anxiety characteristics and wait for it, that a dependence on a couple of herbs which in the literature have been well documented as offering hope and positive hope for people who are genuinely in the early stages. And you would have heard me talk on this program about the herb ginkgo biloba. Now, ginkgo biloba, ginkgo biloba is still 
put forward as a natural drug. Let me put it, when I use that term natural drug, let me say that the ginkgo biloba leaf uh, is is a remarkable um, leaf this time of the year. It will be turning amber-coloured, and that indicates the presence of high levels of active in it. Now, that preparation has been used and sophisticated uh, in Europe to present a concentrated preparation that's more like a pharmaceutical even though it can be presented uh, at the over-the-counter level. One of the indications for that, well, well promoted by Dr. Weiss in his very technical and clinical book, Herbal Medicine, the English translation, is memory failure, recall problems, early signs of dementia. Ginkgo biloba is still, in my opinion, uh, underappreciated as an agent to resist some of these symptoms which are too easily too easily uh, put into the bracket of, oh, you've got dementia or Alzheimer's, and the person then goes along the pathway, perhaps, of drug therapy, which uh, may or may not do her any good, but may be too early, in my opinion. Right, okay. So I would would suggest that. But again, get on the net, and I challenge everyone to do this, because there are quite a number of herbs now emerging as a result of clinical experience and an understanding of their chemistry, get on the net and look at the herb sage, right? Right. Salvia, S-A-L-V-I-A, Salvia officinalis. You will be surprised at the way in which sophisticated preparations or extracts of salvia are now creeping into the management of many of these symptoms that many people in our age bracket will begin to experience. There are two herbs, but one day I'll talk about one of my great discoveries, and it'll probably be the last great discovery of my career, that that is so well documented that I'm frightened to mention it at this stage because you can guarantee some entrepreneur out there will take it up and present it as a wonder drug, which it isn't, but it is well, well known, and I'll talk about it down the track, well-documented, well-documented, used throughout Southeast Asia in the same way of the ginkgo. I'll talk about that later on. Dennis Stewart with 2NURFM's Health Naturally. And Julie from Smith's Lake, you've got car sickness in the family to deal with. That's right. Hello, Julie. Hello, Dennis. Thank you for taking my call. Pleasure. Yes, I have an eight-year-old granddaughter who who is very reluctant to get in the car because she's sick. Oh, dear girl. She feels sick. So is there something other than, you know, getting uh, a drug over the counter that I could give her? Okay. Look, what I'd suggest you do here is two things. I have mentioned already today the potential benefits of peppermint tea. Now, peppermint tea is a pleasant tea. It's not an obnoxious taste, as sometimes herbs are. So it it would be useful to use that, uh, say, before the trip or while the trip is taking place. But preparatory to the trip, don't forget that the most important herb used in Europe and also in Western herbalism for kids' conditions that are conditions of anxiety, uh, fear, worry is the herb chamomile 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 now chamomile tea is not just is not just something that is used uh, to give to children at night to make them go to sleep Uh, sometimes that that works but it is a herb that has both relaxant effects very mildly 
on the nervous system, but also, also has some mild anti-nauseant characteristics. So okay. if I were you, um, prior to the trip, uh, make a, a, a nice cup of chamomile tea. You can put some honey in it. Uh, it tastes nice. It will tend right. to have uh, tend to have a relaxing effect on the little girl. And then yes. and then uh, use on the trip or as the trip starts, make a thermos of some peppermint tea, which you can then use throughout the journey. Right. Thank you very much. See how you go with that. It's not going to cost you anything. It's perfectly harmless and the kid or the child will not object to the taste of either of those herbs. Excellent mm. stuff. It's nice to have a ready mm. remedy, isn't it? Mm. Thank you, Julie, for your call. Edith has rung in from Raymond Terrace, and uh, diabetes type 2 is on your mind, and you're looking for a natural way to help reduce blood sugar? Yes, yes. Hello, how are you, Edith? I'm well, Dennis. Good, how good. are you? I'm very well. Edith, um... With your type 2 diabetes, it has been diagnosed as type 2? Yes. Okay. Now, are you on metformin or any other medication? Yeah, 500 milligrams, one tablet with the main meal at night, and uh, it's metformin, yes. And that's all you're taking? Yes, yeah. I'm what? not in the high range. I'm well, that's good. Now, let, let, me, just, let mm. me just let me just uh, point out here that metformin, even in naturopathic circles, is being uh, embraced as a very, yeah. very useful and safe medication. Now, that might sound paradoxical, but it's true. I can, uh, okay. I can point the reference to it. So the fact that you're on a metformin, which is a first-line medication, uh, is a good thing. What you have to do, of course, is to make sure that you stay at that level and work with your... Uh, diabetic specialist or your GP in making yes. sure you don't go any further. Now, let me ask you a few questions. Are you mm -hmm. mo are you monitoring your own blood sugar? No, she's just started me on the tablets and said come back in three months, the normal GP. Okay, so you're just on tablets, are you? Yes. Okay, well, look, your GP has prescribed them. I think that the correct thing to do is to work with what your GP is saying. You wouldn't expect me to say anything other than that. What no. what I would suggest, and I've suggested it to all patients who are, if you like, uh, pre-diabetic or insulin resistant or who may even be uh, type 2 diabetic and uh, wanting to do something about their condition, uh, go to your pharmacy and get hold of a little AccuCheck unit and start to take your blood sugar level. I take mine because I was diagnosed many, many years ago as type 2. I take no medication, but... I, I make sure that I watch what I eat, and I'll talk about that in a moment, and I take my blood sugar level fairly regularly, and I keep a diary of it, which your doctor would be interested to see, I'm sure. So the first mm -hmm. thing I would suggest is get familiar with the taking of your blood sugar levels and see, mm -hmm. see what levels you get and how stable it is, even on the medication that your doctor has given you. Now, the thing that's most important, particularly in this early stage, of type 2 is making sure that you're doing the right thing as far as weight and exercise is concerned. A, yeah. a mild reduction in weight, interestingly enough, can have quite a significant effect on your blood mm. sugar levels. So unless you're yeah. doing something like that, you're letting yourself down. And I actually, no, I I actually mm. promote the idea of periodic fasting. Now, what that, basic, right. what that basically means is 
taking on board some of the ideas of what is called the 5-2 diet. Now, the 5-2 yeah. diet is well known. It does work. It costs you nothing. You can get information off the net on it or buy books on it. There are numerous books on it. And I have seen the effects of that in my practice quite dramatically. Essentially, mm-hmm. it says, essentially, it says, two days a week, you semi-fast. Now, that has quite a significant effect metabolically and can precipitate gradually and in a controlled way some weight loss, but also just that technique can show some improvement in your blood sugar levels. So look at the the 5-2 dietary ideas as a means of getting into this idea of doing something about what you're eating. Now, you would have been told by your doctor and your dietitian that to you and I, carbs can be virtually poisonous. Now, I know that's an overstatement, but my view is that too frequently uh, people with diabetes, type 2 diabetes, are not aware of the fact that the foods that we popularly eat and drink are riddled with sugars and carbs are sugars. One of the most important things you can do is to read labels and see what level of sugar or carbohydrates in them Cut back on your carbs, improve your protein intake, fish, chicken, uh, meat, those sorts of foods. Protein, mm-hmm. protein is less likely to cause spikes in your blood sugar level and it's a good yeah. substitute for some of the junky forms of carbs that we ingest. You sit outside of a supermarket and look at the trolleys that are brought out and you have a look yeah. at the litres and litres and litres of famous mm. drinks that people are using, all of mm. which tend to be labelled or, or laden with with sugar. If, if, well, I must say my diet is quite good. I good. don't drink sugary drinks. I good. only drink water and good. coffee. <laughs> well, you're, you're um, on the right track. You're on the right yeah, track. Yeah, I've, I've done that for years. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. Uh, are you going yeah. to do something about your, your eating habit generally, taking on board this idea of perhaps a 5-2 yeah. emphasis? Looking yes, at, I already have cut the carbs. Yeah, um, well done. Because and I buy low GI bread, which I think you can have occasionally, which yes, I don't have yeah, very often. I might have good. it once a week. That's good. Um, yeah, potatoes, no. Don't have potatoes. Yeah, and, um, and you're watching. Yeah, no, so I'm, I'm on the right track. You are indeed, <laughs> and this is why I think your doctor at this stage has just got you on that first level of medication and yes. just wants to see you in three months. If you yes. work with that, it's likely along the track that you can slide off the medication. Good, that's what my aim is. <laughs> well, look, if you work, look, rather than take uh, so-called herbal supplements or anything at this stage, I think that's mm-hmm. inappropriate at this stage. There are certainly, okay. su- certainly supplements. One of them is called Gymnema Sylvestra, which has a reputation of being useful in helping blood sugar levels. But my view is... Work with what you're doing. It's all good. You're in the early stages of it. Don't go and spend a heap of money, so to speak, on supplements mm-hmm. that will promise you a million things but most likely won't. Work along yeah. with what your GP is doing. Metformin It's not bad medication. Look at yeah. what you're eating. You're doing that already. Exercise. Yeah. Deliberately do that, keeping in mind yeah. that a mild amount of weight loss will have a significant yeah. effect on your blood sugar levels. And look at what you're eating. Follow my yeah. advice. See carbs. Well, as being very, very problematical. I use the word poisonous. That's an overstatement, but you know where I'm coming from. You do yeah, that. 
You do that, and I think in three months' time you'll get back on the program and say that you're doing pretty good and your GP's happy with the way you're going. Good. That's what my plan is. <laughs> well, we'll help you get there, Edith. To NURFM's Health Naturally. Cathy? I would just like to know what is the best ginkgo biloba okay. to take. Okay. That's a very sensible question. Uh, let me, without being too technical, explain um, the ginkgo we're talking about. Uh, the ginkgo we're talking about is a concentrated extract. That is, the, the leaves of the tree have been harvested at the appropriate time, which is in autumn when the leaves are at their most active phase, and they're concentrated down to the point where they are 50 to 1 in concentration. That means 50 kilos of the dried herb is processed to the extent that you get 1 kilo of the concentrate. Now it's called it's called twenty four percent ginkgo biloba. Now the twenty four percent means that that concentrated extract has twenty four percent of ginkgo glycosides. Now anything less than that, anything less than this modern uh, medication that's called ginkgo twenty four percent, anything less than that, I have not found has got any documentation of the benefits that are associated with the concentrate. Now, having said that, and that was probably a little bit confusing and over your head, let me just say that most preparations in the pharmacy or in our good health food stores, and let's support our health food stores, most preparations of ginkgo in the pharmacy or the health food stores would be based, would be based on the standard, the standardised extract of ginkgo biloba, and despite other names that they might have, uh, brand names or trade names, the labelling would indicate the concentration of the ginkgo and the dose associated with it. Um, so the first preparation that I was aware of in Australia was called tabonin, T-E-B-O-N-I-N. I'm not sure whether that's still available, but... Uh, Other products in Australia now that are based on the ginkgo are based on similar principles to that. So, in my opinion, all the ginkgo tableted preparations in the marketplace would be based on the standardised extract, which should be so labelled, and the dosage on it, therefore, would correspond to that concentration. Now, if, if you are still a little bit confused, go to your pharmacy on this one, Yep. Because they can, exp- they would understand very well what I've been saying about the concentrated extract of the ginkgo requiring 24% of active principles. Um, and they would reiterate what I have said and may be able to help you better understand it. By the way, uh, some of our good, uh, very well-educated health food store operators could probably do the same. Okay. All good? Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. Thank you. All the very best with okay. that. And uh, Beryl has rung in from Booragal. Uh, Beryl, you've got a husband with chronic COPD. Doesn't sound good. Um, and you'd like to ask Dennis about that? I would, thank you. Hello, Beryl. Your husband has chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, he's has he? Oh, dear, dear. Uh, yeah. Now, he's, he's obviously on some pretty uh, important medication that would have been prescribed by his specialist? Well, the only thing that, that he's 
with his, uh, all his puffers, of course. He's yes, on, yes, of course. And very low dose of steroids. He yeah. takes five milligrams. Prednisone. Yeah. Um, mm. because, it's, because in the past we had something which is very rare, but yes. it's called cryptogenic organising pneumonia. Okay. Which is a I know little about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's something I'm not familiar with, but he has well, to be on steroid to survive, um, presumably. He's had very high doses, which yeah. caused him um, to have diabetes. Of course. And so they've put him, got him yes. back down to yeah. being only on five, five milligrams, yeah. and Look, he stays on that all the time. Uh, but apart from that, nothing else, really. And he, he just, um, you know, still goes back every so often to see that he... Um, Respiratory specialist, but they good, more good. or less did nothing more they could do for him. Yeah. Um, just in yeah. the case when he has pneumonia, he's had yeah. several bouts of that, and yes. they put him into the hospital and yes. give him antibiotics and high dose. Of sure, pills. sure. Look. Mm. Yeah. It's it's probably not proper for me to give any detailed information here, although I will give you some hints on what uh, a competent medical herbalist would do about this. The first thing that we would draw upon is the concept that in our system of medicine, there are a number of herbs that are organ-related. In other words, in old-fashioned terminology, they would be called organ tonics. Now, right. when we talk of an organ tonic, we talk about a herb or a supplement that has a broad spectrum uh, beneficial effect on the organ, not always a specific effect, but a generalised supportive effect in the same way that hawthorn berry is considered to be a remarkable tonic for the herb, uh, but its action is so multifaceted that it's impossible to describe exactly the benefit effect, if you like. It's, it's a very complicated chemistry. Well, similarly with organ tonics for the lung, and there is one in particular uh, which is well known in our profession, very common wayside herb, which is extracted again and prescribed basically to support the faltering lung. And it's a herb called Moline. I'll spell it for you. M-U-L-L-E-I-N, Moline. Right, never now, heard. Yes, yeah. well, at, at the appropriate time of the year, particularly in the cool country, around Armadale and Urella, it, it lines the, 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 the Pacific Highway. I have uh, photographs of myself in my younger and more stupid days uh, collecting <laughs> collecting the herb with students. Uh, they were good days. Moline uh, is, a, is a great herb. But look, for the lung also, there are two remedies that are used to resist or build up resistance to infection. And they go together. Any medical herbalist that's studied properly would know that the combination uh, of the American herb, Echinacea angustifolia, and also the European herb, Ellie Campaign, they would know that that is a duo that has been used by herbalists for probably 150 years to support to support the compromised lung and to help to help doesn't take the role of an antibiotic but it helps the lung resist infection so very briefly and i could go a lot further than this because i I have helped a lot of people with copd uh, but but the 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 use of moline in in a liquid extract form uh, to support generally the health of the lung, the tissue of the lung, and also the prescription or the taking of the two herbs, Echinacea angustifolia and Elecampane, the European herb, to build up resistance to infection. 
it's a great little combination. Right. Okay. Well, I think what we might do, Dennis, is make an appointment to come and see you. Okay. Well, that's... what you should do is run everything past your specialist. He or your GP must know who, whoever you see, you must let your medical managers know and get their nod before you embark on anything. Very, okay. very good and very good luck with the yeah. uh, way forward. Now, Dave rang from Tea Gardens, Dennis, and uh, Dave's not on the line now, but okay. he has he does get bacterial lung infections oh. and he's asking well, if you can suggest isn't anything. Isn't that fortuitous? We've just been uh, talking about this, uh, Dave. Look, take on board what I said to this dear lady a few moments ago that um, if you continually get bacterial uh, lung infections. The herb moline used as a general tonic for the lung, uh, tonic in a broad spectrum term, uh, and the ongoing use of the two herbs, which have a, an effect in improving resistance to respiratory infections, Echinacea angustifolia and Elecampane. I think that would be a very, very good starting base for you. The only other suggestion I would mention here, and I would mention it also to our previous listener, is don't forget the long, long history that the garlic as a medicinal agent has had in addressing respiratory conditions. It was used in the First World War in that era prior to the advent of antibiotics, and it still has a reasonably good reputation as a herb that has some ability to help in fighting infection activity. So that's good. We've got some great pointers there. I hope so. Yeah, look, they're very sensible questions. I'm, We've had uh, some good questions today. We have indeed. And, uh, I think listeners should have got something from what we discussed today. Yes, mm -hmm. and we even started off with an infusion. We've got just one okay. minute. Well, we might touch on that very quickly. Herbal teas is a general term, but infusions and decoctions are two forms of making a herbal tea. I said earlier... Some herbs, if you were to boil them, you would destroy their activity. So you never boil leafy-type herbs like a peppermint or chamomile. You'd destroy their activity. You'd make them simply as a herbal infusion, similar to the way that you might make a cup of tea with a tea bag, making a herbal infusion. On the other hand, some herbs, particularly the fibrous parts of herbs, roots and barks, they need to be boiled, particularly in their crude form because hot water will not penetrate them. One has to boil them in order to get the goodies out of them. So something like marshmallow root would have to be boiled in order to make a herbal tea with the liquid being poured off the dried herb, allowed to stand, and being used in a tea in that form. Decoctions, the boiling of some herbs, infusions, simply making a herbal tea from them. Both methods give you that herbal tea uh, which can harness the activity of the herbs that we talk about. Well, that's excellent. Mm. And um, we're almost out of time. Dear, <laughs> but, dear. Um, but what do you think? Peppermint is obviously a very useful herb uh, um, to make a tea out oh, of. It's a good starting base. A very good it's starting base. It's pleasant to take. Uh, and, but don't overlook um, two other herbs that I hope I've mentioned one of them today a chamomile for a general action on the gastrointestinal tract, useful as a mild anti-nauseant, not as powerful as the others we've mentioned, but also very, very effective in dealing with dyspeptic conditions, generally tummy upsets, 
looseness of the bowels. But if we get a chance next week, we'll talk about one of my most famous remedies, and that's Melissa officinalis, commonly known as lemon balm, which in our system of medicine is the primary remedy used to address nervous dyspepsia, as we used to call it. Nervous dyspepsia. Mm. Now, that's something we haven't heard for a while. It's an old term. But anxiety-based conditions of the gut, which we see frequently in kids, high achievers that are approaching their their examinations, their stomach starts to churn like a concrete mixer. They get all upset. Sometimes they can even vomit. I have never known lemon balm in all my prescribing not to be of benefit in what I still call a nervous dyspepsia. Thank you, Dennis Stewart. Mm, at a good time. We are looking forward to your company next week too on 2NURFM's Health Naturally.